each year, <clears throat> Time Magazine compiles a list of the 100 most influential people in the world. And from that list of 100, they narrow it down to recognizing one person as the most influential person in the world. In 2010, it was Mark Zuckerberger, founder of Facebook. And they said for connecting more than a half billion people and mapping the social relations among them for creating a new system of exchanging information and for changing how we live our lives. In 2011, they named the person simply as the protester, a Tunisian fruit vendor that set himself on fire in a public square. It would incite protests that would topple dictators and start a global wave of dissent. 2012, it was President Barack Obama. In 2013, it was Pope Francis. And they said this, for pulling the papacy out of the palace and into the streets, for committing the world's largest church to confronting its deepest needs, and for balancing judgment with mercy. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, I thought, just narrowly beating out Miley Cyrus. How you put those two things together, I don't know, but that's what happened. 2014, it was the Ebola fire, uh, the Ebola men and women who were fighting the uh, disease, and they risked, persisted, sacrificed, and saved. Oftentimes, people of importance are viewed as people with influence, notoriety, wealth, or governmental position. Consequently, people of little influence, wealth, fame, or position are regarded as insignificant and unimportant. But not so in God's kingdom. Those who are viewed as unimportant in the world's standards are very important to God. In God's kingdom, the greatest among us are those who care for the least among us. The context is Matthew 18, verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The theme of this morning's message is that God cares for the seemingly insignificant, and so should we. First, God thinks very highly of lowly followers of his. God thinks very highly of lowly followers of his, and so should we. Lowly followers are depicted in verse 10 of chapter 18 as little ones. Notice verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. The term little ones may in fact be referring to little children who have placed faith in Christ. Notice verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But it also includes those who have humbled themselves and have become like children by placing their faith in Christ. People who are willing to make themselves of no account. As seen in verse 4. 
Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Not just literal children, but ever humbles themselves like a children and like a child. And in fact, this particular section is talking primarily about believers in general who have humbled themselves and taken on lowly, insignificant positions. For notice if you say, notice in verse 10, it says, see that you do not despise one of, and now these words, these little ones. It's plural. He's not just talking about the child placed in the midst any longer. Now he's talking about the larger picture of people who have humbled themselves, taking on influent, uh, uh, non-influential status in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so there is an example that is given to us, and that is that those representing the little ones occupy a special relationship to God. Notice, little ones are protected by God. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father is in heaven. So what does that mean? Who are these angels? Well, it's difficult to answer that question precisely. We are not really given any further information as to who these guardian angels are. We do have the statement concerning the ministry of angels in the book of Hebrews, which says this, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? For... Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So we do know that the primary ministry of angels is to be sent out and to serve those who are inheritors of salvation or those who are believers. But that's about all that we know. And rather than speculate a great deal about guardian angels, I would point us to the point that is being made in the text. And that is that these angels behold the face of God continually. That is what we are to focus on. They behold the face of God continually. Mankind, in general, is not allowed to look on the face of God. Even Moses was not allowed to look on the face of God. Exodus 30, verse 20, where Moses asked to see the glory of God. God said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will uh, take my hand away. You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses, you cannot see my face. Even more amazing is that the seraphim 
in Isaiah's vision, in Isaiah chapter 6, hid their faces, hid their face from God. Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. So this seraphim, this particular rank of angel, had six wings, and with two of them, they covered their face, for they could not look upon a holy God. Jesus said that the angels of these little ones continually see my face. It's a statement of their high and privileged position. It's a statement that to God, these little ones are precious. They are important. They have a place of dignity that is higher than any other individuals have known in time past. If you want to occupy a special place in the presence of God, for these disciples, the context, again, last week, is they're arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. You want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, then look out for the, for the, for the least. Look out for the weakest, for their angels, those that guard them had the privilege of continually seeing the face of God. You want to be great? Minister to those that are the weakest. Don't dote over the rich, the famous, the powerful, but give yourself to the needy, the helpless, the oppressed. Not the important, the unimportant. The people that are so easily ignored, we must not ignore. Secondly, God searches out even the little one who wanders away from him, and so should we. God's ways are superior to our ways. And Jesus raises a question concerning shepherding, because that culture certainly knew shepherding. So in Matthew chapter 18, verse 12, it says this. So what do you think? What do you think? Give me your opinion. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went away? Does he not leave the 99 and go in search for the one? The expected answer is yes. Of course he does. Of course he does. A good shepherd is concerned about each of his sheep. The fact is of God's individual care for his people. That's what he's stressing. Not only is he concerned for his flock in general, but he's concerned about every single individual within that flock. If just one wanders away, he will go out in pursuit of that one, for that one is precious to him. And so he rejoices. He rejoices. Notice verse 13. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. The reason that God rejoices over the one more than the 99 is that God does not want a single little one to perish. Notice verse 14. 
So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The little one is part of the flock. He's one of the 99. He's one of God's sheep. God is not willing that any that belong to him will perish. When it says that he is not willing, it isn't simply that he doesn't desire it. He won't allow it. God will not allow one that belongs to him to perish. Said so many times in so many different ways in the scriptures, no one is able to pluck them out of my hand. All that are given to him, he saves. No matter how seemingly insignificant by the world's standard, no matter how unimportant, no matter how obscure, no matter how minuscule, no matter how unlovable by the world's standard, God is not going to allow a single one of his sheep to perish. And so, the admonition is, in this particular verse, is not to despise. Notice verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. See that you do not look down upon them. See that you don't regard them as insignificant, but hold them in a high and privileged position. The application is we should be concerned not only for the rich and powerful or influential in the church. We should be concerned for the poor, needy, and dependent people of the church. We should never think that someone is, in, is expendable. That it doesn't really matter if they wander away. They never really helped us very much anyway. They didn't have much money. They couldn't contribute very much. They didn't have a particular high standing in society. People weren't attracted to the church because of them. They didn't seem to be particularly gifted. What matter? You know, it, it's okay. We, we can lose them, but we sure can't lose this brother or sister over here. We better be careful that, that this doesn't become a trend and, and we lose some of the important people in the church. No, the idea is that the least significant, however you describe that, is very important to God. Now we move to a very interesting portion of Scripture. I say that because I've been emphasizing in Matthew of keeping all of these passages in their context, of seeing the bigger picture of how these relate. And it would be real easy to stop there and next week look at this other because it looks like a change of, of thought. It looks like we have moved into a different discussion. But this morning I want to show you we haven't. Rather, we need to understand verses 15 through 20 as an application of everything we just said. <clears throat> so my point for 15 through 20 is this. We should search out those who have wandered away from God even if they have sinned against us personally. We should 
Search out those who have wandered away from God, even if they have sinned against us personally. Now you think about the analogy of the sheep wandering away. One of the 99. Why do sheep wander away? Well, that's what sheep do. Sheep have a pretty short attention span. They have a a tendency to wander off. Again, you think about a child, okay? What is one of the biggest concerns that a parent has about their child? A little child, a toddler. They're going to wander off. Okay, you're with them in the mall. You're with them in a crowd. You're going to hold your hand. You know, now you, you see some parents, they're almost like dog collars with a leash on them, you know, and stuff, so that you can't lose them. They, they are there because they have a tendency to wander off. That's what children do. Children wander off. That's what spiritual children do. They wander off. The mature those that are developed, those that are walking with the Lord, they're firmly grounded. They're not easily enticed away. They're not lured by what the world has to offer. They've been down that road. They've seen the situations. They're reliable. They're going to be here. They're going to be committed. They're the 99. They're holding fast. The person that's weak in the Lord, the person that's a new believer, the person that's struggling, the person who doesn't feel like they participate very well, the person who has a low self-esteem, all that stuff wrapped up together, that's the person that has a tendency to wander off. Now, imagine that one of these people wanders off and before they do, they give you a piece of their mind. Before they do, they treat you unfairly. Before they do, they lash out at you. Before they do, maybe they stole from you. Before they do, they've committed some kind of atrocity against you. Whatever it is, our text says, they sin against you. So what should you do when a person wanders off and they've sinned against you? See, it raises the ante. It moves from just being concerned about people now to being concerned about people that aren't concerned about you. It's now being concerned about people who actually have taken advantage of you somehow. Being concerned about people that have done you some kind of disservice. Being concerned about people who have sinned. And not just sinned in general. Sinned against you. People that the world would naturally write off. We can't just say, I washed my hands of them. Or say, good riddance. I'm glad they're not here anymore. I'm glad I don't have to put up with that. I'm glad I don't have to experience them in my life any longer. At least I don't have to put up with them anymore. They are gone. Instead, it says that we should go after that person seeking his welfare. It is the application 
of the shepherd and the sheep that we just read. So notice verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The reason I am taking this painstaking approach is because I think 15 to 20 is an awfully abused passage. I think in many people's minds, church discipline is about getting even. Or this is about confronting the person because they have hurt you, and so you want to make them know that they have hurt you. No, this is a passage that's talking about going to someone who has wandered off, and you're trying to bring them back. Notice, if that person will repent, then you've added your brother to the fold once again. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You have gained your brother. You have added your brother. The flock is full again. It's back to a hundred. It's complete. You've done your work. He's back. Notice the emphasis. Not that you got judgment. Not that you were vindicated. Not that you were proven to be the innocent party. The emphasis is you gained your brother. You got the sheep back. That's the goal. However, what happens if that person still won't listen? Verse 16. But if he does not listen, what should you do? Answer, don't give up. Notice what it says. Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Go and take two or three people with you so that it cannot be misunderstood what is being said or why it's being said. If the person still will not listen, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, notice it says, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. I'd submit to you that that means primarily bring it before the elders. Make the church aware. But what if he doesn't listen to them? Okay, well, as I say, tell it to the church. But if he still will not listen, then it says, treat that person as a non-believer. Verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. That is, let them be to you as a person who is not a part of the fold. This is not intended to be cruel, but again, it's intended to be an instrument of repentance. For to be declared an unbeliever by the church should be a sobering thought. Notice verse 18. Truly I say to you, 
Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. It's in the context of telling it to the church. And that's again why I believe it's the elders. For saying two or three, okay? Whoever is in charge, whoever is the shepherd of the flock, whoever is overseeing the care of these individuals, tell it to them. Tell it to them. And the decision that they make is the decision that is made in heaven. Boy, now that that almost takes your breath for a moment. Go with me back to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Again, let's give you the uh, context. Uh, Jesus came to the, uh, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the dis- district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now look at these words. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's the words that we just read. Peter, you are given this responsibility. Now, we want to dodge this as Protestants, you know, because the, because the Catholic Church has really abused this particular portion of Scripture, but just because they abused this portion of Scripture, we shouldn't write it off. There is a somber responsibility that the leaders of the church have been given. The leaders of the church are to make a decision about an individual's profession of faith. Is it genuine or not? Now, usually, there's not a whole lot of concern about making the decision of a person's faith being genuine. Okay? When do they make that decision? Answer, when a person is baptized. Baptism is is very, very significant. Baptism is a statement by the person who is performing the baptism that this person is seen to be a child of God. You're laying hands upon them. Okay? 
the Great Commission. Go you into all the world and preach the gospel, okay? And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. You are making followers of Christ. When is a person a follower of Christ? Publicly, when they're baptized. And the person who is administering that baptism is saying, this person is a follower of Christ. They are, in essence, giving their stamp of approval. They are a child of God. In this passage, if this person wanders off, having created a ruckus, they've committed sin, and they're wandering, it's, it's the worst case scenario. There are less worst case scenarios. It's the worst case scenario. Person wanders off having committed sin. The person they've sinned against goes after them. The sinner rebuffs them. Person gets a friend or two, goes after them again. The sinner rebuffs them. They come back. They get the leadership of the church. And they go after the sheep again. And they're rebuffed. At that point, the leadership is to say, you're not really one of the sheep. You're not really saved. You don't really want to be a part of this group. You don't really want to be a part of the church. It is 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Not everybody who professes faith is truly saved. Some are. Some are. Over a period of time, it will become more apparent that some people aren't saved. And they really want nothing to do with Christ's kingdom. They want to leave it. And they're committing sin. And they are rebuked. And they are rebuked. And they are rebuked. And they are rebuked. And they don't want to be a part of the hundred. The church is to say, you're not a part of the kingdom of God. Again, it is not intended to be mean or cruel. It is intended to be sobering. Sobering. It is intended for that person to be shook to their bones. It is intended for them to quake. For them to hear, having been entrusted by God's authority, to not lightly pass judgment, but after due process, after many steps, and out of real concern, to say, I don't think you're a brother. I don't think you're a sister. 
I think you're lost. I don't think you've just wandered. You're lost. That doesn't mean you write them off. It doesn't mean they can't repent. It doesn't mean they can't accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. It means that you are concerned because Jesus won't allow one that belongs to him to perish. And you're saying to this person, you're perishing. That means you don't belong to him. Sobering thoughts. But we should be concerned. We should be concerned. We should be concerned about every believer that worships with us. We should be concerned enough to pursue them when they wander away. We should be concerned enough to pursue them even when they have sinned against us, harmed us, failed us in some way, have not met their Christian duty or obligation. For God is not willing that one of his little ones should perish, and neither should we. And so we need to be concerned about the least among us. But let me just say again in closing, we live in a day and age in which there is very, very little respect for the church. A lot of Christians don't even think you need to be a part of a church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's Christ that established the church, not the church. It is Christ that establishes the church. It is Paul that said, ordain elders in every city. That this isn't just for one location, this is everywhere. Have elders. It is in the book of Hebrews that it says that we are to be subject unto our elders for they must give an account for us. The word of God teaches that there is a great responsibility for those that are in authority. It's a spiritual responsibility to care for people. Therefore, if someone in that place of spiritual authority, not speaking by themselves, but after a contemplation with the other elders, after hearing all the evidence, of after going through all these steps, comes down to the position that says, we don't think you're saved. As I say, it should send shivers through the mind of an individual. And one of our problems today is that eternal security has been understood in such a strange way that people have been taught never to question whether you're really saved or not. Never doubt whether you're really saved. And who in the world has the right to say to someone else that you don't think they're saved? It's this passage that gives that right. It's this passage that gives that responsibility. The confidence that we have in our relationship to Jesus Christ is that his spirit is at work within us. And if it's not, it's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing. Take it seriously. And may we take our responsibility seriously for people that are wandering away. May we not just 
write them off. But may we go through hard and difficult process of pursuing them. Let me also just say it's not all that cut and dried. For there are many ways in which people need to be pursued. Time's got to be given. All kinds of things have to take place. Valuation, etc., etc. But at some point, if people don't repent, they need to be confronted. Are you truly saved? Let's pray. Our Father, help us to truly be concerned about those in our midst, to be concerned one for another. Uh, Lord, individually concerned. It's, It's up to that person that's been sinned against to go and try to get that wandering brother back, and then to take two or three. Long before the elders of the church were involved, other people are involved in reaching out and seeking to bring people back. Help us all of those that are the least among us, those that are the weakest, those that have a tendency to wander away, those that have great needs. And Lord, help us in this great work. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.